On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both their boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed them. Please, you may take your seats. It's our tradition here at Christ Community Church to take a few minutes and meditate on God's word. This morning, uh, we are not continuing in our series in Colossians. We're taking a break. Um, And the reason I'm doing that is um, not only because our senior pastor, Paul Phillips, is on a much-needed rest this morning, but because I was reading through Colossians, and in the first chapter, verse 5, I read these words, You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And this is what caught my attention. The gospel is increasing. And I, my original thought was the four spiritual laws are now the five spiritual laws. And tomorrow there'll be the six spiritual laws. And the gospel keeps increasing to include more information. That's not true. That's not true. The gospel is the gospel The content does not increase. So I began to ponder what types of things increase. You know what types of things increase? Things that grow. Things that are alive. The gospel is not merely a set of facts. It is something that is alive. That that seems to go out and spread and bear fruit like a tree or grow much like a tree. And I began to wonder what that might look like for Wilmington. And it was hard for me to imagine, you know, in 2014 or 2015 at the end of this year, did the gospel grow in Wilmington? What would that look like if we were to say yes? How would we measure that? How would we go about measuring whether or not the gospel would increase? And so if I were the Apostle Paul writing to the Wilmingtonians in my book of Wilmingtonians, right, and I would say... I'm praising God because in your area the gospel is increasing. Would I be able to to say that or would I be able to know what I'm talking about when I say that? And then I thought about India. As you know, uh, four members of this church, including me, went to India recently to see what Alpha Ministries was doing 
And we did a, a, a medical uh, clinic for the pastors who were going to go out and church plant. And then um, Paul and Spence and I did training for the pastors. We spoke, we preached. And so in India, we went to a city called Baroda in northwest India. And driving around, around that city, uh, I noticed uh, a lot of people. There were people upon people upon people. If you were going to take a taxi, there's probably 10 people in a taxi. People hanging out the windows in the, the stores or in the, the buildings. There were markets everywhere. People, it, in fact, the size of Baroda is roughly the size of Wilmington and Carolina Beach. But you would have to put two cities of Chicago into that space to make Baroda. There's 5 million people sitting in Baroda alone. And the surroundings area, it's even more. The countryside's not even not crowded. There's people everywhere. And you can't imagine there's, in the middle of the country, there's a traffic jam. Because <laughs> people are everywhere. And I started to think, do these people know Jesus? And then I realized that our team had probably met or seen every single Christian in Baroda. Because when we went to church on Sunday morning, the two churches that we went to, that was about it. That was about it in the whole city. And so I looked out at these people that were along the sides of the streets and so, and I, and I thought they probably don't know the name of Jesus. In fact, Benny Matthews, the leader of Alpha Ministries, would, would come to us and he would say things like, I was talking to somebody and I asked if you've ever heard of Jesus and they said, what does he live in your village? They'd never heard even the name, some of these people, in the outlying villages. Our team, not me, but part of our team went to a village where there wasn't one church, one Christian, one Bible. In the whole place, there wasn't a single witness. Now, in that place, I could easily see the gospel growing. And when I stood up, you can imagine, as I stood up in front of the pastors and I, I preached to them and I watched them and I realized every single a crowd at least this size, every one of them is a first generation Christian. Nobody's been raised in a Christian home or catechized or went to Christian school. And what an amazing, amazing perspective that is. And then I realized that's Luke 5. It's precisely what's going on in Luke 5. And by the way, it's what's happening in Isaiah 6 as well. You know, that famous passage where Isaiah encounters the presence of God. And then at the end of that passage, he says, here am I, send me. We'll, we'll get into that in, in due time. But we need to look at, at Luke 5. And many have asked me, how was your trip to India? And I want to say it's Luke 5. And so let's, let's take a look at Luke 5. Now, the first thing that I want you to see, the, the first thing that Luke needs you to see, the, the author here wants you to see that this passage is really based on an Old Testament passage, namely Isaiah 6. And all the commentaries say this, you know, all those who study deeply, that the, the, there's too much going on in Luke 5 that resembles Isaiah 6. And so we know Luke wants you to think about it. Isaiah 6 uh, if you read through it, the first few verses, Isaiah comes into the presence of God through a vision and he sees God. Remember, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And, and, and he's amazed at God's presence. And then remember what he does? He falls on his knees in humility and says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And then God sends a seraphim down with a hot coal, touches his lips. And in some way that symbolizes cleansing 
And, and God says, I'm cleansing you, making your lips clean. And then the next stage is when he rises him up. He reassures him and recruits him, not just reassures him with forgiveness, but recruits him to a new place in his life where he says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. So we see four things, revelation, reaction, reassurance, and recruitment. The fancy R words that I came up with for today's sermon. So let's look at those four in Luke 5, remembering Isaiah 6. So let's look at Revelation first. Luke 5, you'll look down and see verse 4. It says this, When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. We have breaking nets, and we have sinking boats. And what we see here is very interesting. Just as God sets up Isaiah 6 with a vision of his glory, so in Luke 5, God sets up for his disciples a vision of God's glory. Now, the crowds might not see it. The crowds, they might see fish, a meal, Lots of income, right? They see the good things that come from Jesus doing a miracle. And as Jesus was, was going around the countryside, the three years that he was in ministry, he healed many people. He fed many people. He said, I'm the living water. I'm giving you living water. And everybody thought, that's great. And on a human level, on a physical level, those are all great things, the things that we need. We need to be healed. We need food. We need fish, right? These are all great things. But Peter, it says, but Peter, when he saw it, he had a totally different reaction. He did not see the same thing as the crowd, did he? Peter saw God's glory. Now, you can apply that to to Sunday morning. You come here. And what are you looking to see? What do you want to observe when you come to Christ's community on Sunday morning? When you go to Sunday school? What, what do you want for your children when they go to Sunday school or the K2 pullout or whatever? What do, you, what do you want to see? And I think what we need to see is God's glory. Now, God's glory can come, but we have to have eyes to see it. We have to train our eyes to be like Peter, to see the fish, the miracle, and say, this is the presence of Almighty God, right? Not just it's a good thing that's given to us, but it's the presence of Almighty God. It's interesting, the word that they use to describe the disciples' reaction is astonished. You know, they're astonished. Part of the reason is because God shows up. You ever think about this? In unexpected times, (laughs) he shows up when you least expect it. Because your schedule is not his schedule. And you could be running along your life, and all of a sudden God just comes and reveals himself, his glory to you, and it it takes you off guard. But that's not the whole story, is it? What I've just described is the word startled, not astonished. If I were to, let's say, if I were to hide behind the corner as my friend came walking down the hall, and I jumped out of the corner and I said, boo, right, and my friend jumped back, he would scream, that's startled. But once he saw me, and once he figured out who had scared him, he would relax and probably laugh or be angry. I don't know. But, but at least he would not be scared anymore. But what's happening here in Luke 5 is something completely different. We see the more you look at the miracle, the more you realize 
oh my goodness, I'm standing in the presence of something great. Think about this. The disciples, Jesus set it up perfectly. The disciples had been fishing all night, right? Peter said, we've been fishing all night, Mr. Carpenter. We're the fishermen. We know where the fish are. With our experience and wisdom, we know where to go. We dropped our nets, not in the daytime, in the night when you're supposed to, because our nets are made of linen and they're visible in the, in the waters in the daytime. So we drop our nets. The fish see it in the day. They swim away. Of course, you go at night. So when Jesus says, lower your nets, Peter was reacting. And Jesus said, I know, I'm setting it up for you. I want you to see my glory. If I said to drop your nets on another part of the lake at 12 midnight tomorrow night, you wouldn't see my glory. You would think I just knew something about fish that you didn't. But if you drop your nets right now, the minute after you get done not having any success, in the middle of the day, with these great odds stacked against me, you realize something. Someone here made the fish swim to this location because they weren't there before. And then someone here made the fish, their brains, go against their own survival and swim right into a net they could see as plain as day. Someone has the power to do that. So the more you think about Luke chapter 5, the more you realize this, I'm not startled. It's not just timing. We're standing in the presence of someone great. Now, I want you to look around your life for moments like that. Look around your life to see a heart be transformed. Eyes opened for the first time. A rebel against God, an enemy, as Romans 5, 8 says, enemies of Christ confronted with the gospel and their heart melts. That is a miracle. We need to train our eyes to see the glory of God. Now, I saw this, I think, a little more clearly in India, mainly because it's just different over there. And I pick up on things. I'm more observant. When I come into here, sometimes, I'll be honest, I'm in cruise control. <laughs> Some of you are with me on that. You come into the, the sanctuary and you're just cruise control. You might see a friend. You might see something you like. Then the music starts and it wakes you up and it, it, it arrests you almost. And now you're ushered into the presence of God. But in India, you know, I, I'm alert for my own safety, if nothing else. But I, I'm, I'm alert to what's going on. And I'll describe a scene for you. On, at the pastor's conference, they, they worshipped, much like we do here. They sang songs. And there was a song that they sang with the word, Yeshua, Yeshua. And I knew that was Jesus' name. And so I was like singing with them that one part, and I couldn't sing any of the other parts, but that one part I could sing. But it struck me, and I, I, I started noticing things. First thing I noticed, there was a kid who was 19 years old, standing on stage, playing a $40 toy, a keyboard you give to your 5-year-old at Christmas, a toy with three fingers, like this. And, and it was pumped through these, like, used, old, almost computer speaker-looking things, right? They were pumping it out, and it was, like, brash and rashy and all kind of weirdness. And, and, but the people were just singing. And, and I thought, well, what's the message to the church planter right there? Probably this. Church planters, when you go out and plant a church, buy a $40 cheap keyboard and some cheap speakers, and boom, everybody's going to sing. But what would you say to a church planter in Wilmington? You see how difficult it gets? What would you say to a church planter? I read a, a website who gives advice to new church planters, and it said this, churches need good sound systems. It's as simple as that. 
The church is about proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ, and that simple goal requires some practical action, making sure that people hear clearly the word, the truth that is proclaimed. Our goal is to help churches achieve excellence and clarity in their communication. We want to explain how to get the best audio system for your church and where to get it. But plan on the average cost of a good sound system for 400 people between thirty and $50,000. Now, the difference is pretty clear, right, between what I experienced in India and what we experienced here this morning. I'm not saying it's wrong. Please do not hear me say it's wrong. We need a sound system here. We need it loud. We need the music pumping hard. We need things. And it's so helpful in our culture to reach the people in Wilmington to have this, this glorious gift that we have. And I was sitting right there just a few minutes ago, and I was in God's presence, and I was worshiping in a way I could never worship in India. And it, and it, was, it was so fulfilling and helpful and convicting to me. It was great. But the, the lesson that I learned was not that we should become like India. No, the lesson I learned is this, that our sound system is not something we have come here to observe. Our, our, our wealth can sometimes blind us to God's glory that's standing right in front of us. And so I come back from India, and it's even better here at Christ Community. It lifts me up even harder because I, I saw them worship with little, and now I get to worship with, with so much great things here in, in Wilmington, and, and the worship is that much richer. But a lot of times, and I think you can, you can, you can see this in your own life, sometimes the stuff gets in the way. The pointer, the pointers to God's glory need to point to God's glory. We don't need to stop looking at the finger. Remember my daughter, when she was younger, I would point to a bulldog because I was excited for her to see it. And I said, look, look at the bulldog. And she looked at my finger. And I said, no, the bulldog. And I kept not trying to, you know, and she kept looking at my finger. I'm sure she think, you know, a thought at that age, that's a bulldog right there. That's not a bulldog. The, the pointer, like the, the prayers, the confession, the flowers, the music, the, everything we do here this morning needs to be a finger to point to God's glory. And it does if you're in the right mind, if you're like Peter. But if you're like the crowd and you make comments in your mind, you think critically of, of all of the stuff, you might have missed God's glory. It might have passed you right by and you didn't even see it. So my encouragement to you is that we would become like Peter and not like the crowd. Now, Peter has a special reaction. His reaction informs of, of what he sees. He is just like Isaiah. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. I cannot own you. I cannot grasp you. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I don't, I don't deserve you. Now, that's an odd thing at first when you read that passage, because the crowd is like, yes, Jesus, do it again <laughs> tomorrow. But Peter says, depart from me. It's exactly what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. That's what he says. I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord. That's what Peter says. It's perfectly parallel. We see God, we re-see ourselves. When we see God, we re-see ourselves. And that is key. That, I wouldn't just say key. Absolutely essential. 
I don't know that you can be a Christian without this. I, I, you have to see the glory of God and then re-see yourself and your sin and feel that fear and that disgust and that shame and that guilt. You have to go there and absorb it and embrace it for a, for a while at least. You don't stay there, of course. The next R is reassurance. But you, you have to go there. And you can't put your toe in and then leave. You, you have to see it for what it is. And the more you see God, in fact, I'd say this, if, you, if you're in God's presence and you don't feel this at some point, you're probably not in God's presence. You're in the presence of something great, but not God. You're in the some presence of something Christian, but, but you're not in God's presence. I remember uh, when I was in college, I did landscaping from time to time, and I would go out and, and mow lawns and pick weeds and so forth. And I get dirty, I mean, you know, from head to toe, just everything's on me and dirt everywhere. And I didn't care because the crew that I was working with also got dirty. And so we would all pile in the truck to go to the next location and smell terrible. It was great. You know, we'd eat our, our sandwiches and get dirt in our sandwich. It was just great. Everybody loved it. We're all together in this. But then, I'm, you know, my mom and dad invited me over to their house that night to have dinner. And they invited some guests over. And uh, one of them was a girl that I had some interest in. <laughs> and I maybe kind of didn't know she was coming. So I was a little anxious. And I walked in thinking I would just clean off a little, maybe jump in the pool and be done, right? You know, but, but I didn't have a change of clothes. So now I'm in, the, I'm in the bathroom taking a sink shower. I know you've been there, the sink shower, right? You can't quite fit in, you know, the, the sink, but you're trying to do it quick and, you know, and it just never works. So I come out and I'm, I'm smelling, I, I'm decent, I guess, but I come out and it's terrible. And there she is. And I noticed, what I noticed, how clean she was, how beautiful, how clean smelling. And it was just a huge difference. Now, not 20 minutes before with my crew, I didn't feel bad or dirty at all. It was only when I went into the presence of cleanliness did I see myself again. I resaw myself. And that is natural and that is going to happen in the presence of Almighty God. And we are fearful at that point, aren't we? But then Jesus says the most amazing thing ever. The same thing that's in Isaiah 6. And Jesus says it in three words. Do not be afraid. Okay, that's four words. Do not be afraid. Sorry. I don't know why I'm counting here. Do not be afraid. Peter, look, I'm the one that's going to take your uncleanness. I'm the one that's going to take the punishment that you're fearing right now. And I'm going to give you my righteousness and my cleanliness. We're going to switch. So don't be afraid. In Isaiah, it's the wonderful words of this, Isaiah 6. Listen to these words. Behold, this coal has touched your lips, and your guilt, Isaiah, is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The coal is Jesus Christ. We would never approach God Almighty without Jesus Christ. Never do that. He is an all-consuming fire that burns with anger against our sin. Just the same way when you read the news and you see the sin that's happening in the news and you can hardly stand it. You, you're, you're indignant with the sinfulness of other people, the, the things that they do. How can they do that? That's the same wrath times 10 that God has. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Never approach God without Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. 
Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Peter sees himself as a fish coming into the caught by the net and now flipping and flopping. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now it gets even more amazing than that. Don't just don't be afraid. Jesus says from now on. Those words are very, very, very important to the Christian here this morning. From now on, I'm going to make you something you weren't. You used to be a fish caught in my net, pulled into my boat, and I'm transforming you into a fisherman, a one who catches not fish but men. You see the transformation there. God doesn't just say, I'll clean you, I'll forgive you. The reassurance that we see, and this is the third thing, reassurance, is not just forgiveness. It's not just learn how to pray, learn how to be generous, learn how to worship, learn how to do the spiritual disciplines and be a good Christian. Don't just don't just just take on the righteousness of Jesus. But take that next step from now on, I'm raising you up to become what I effectively was in your life. The one who catches men. The one who brings in catched men, if you will. The minister of the gospel. So Peter is being lifted to that place. Same thing in Isaiah. Who is here? Who shall I send? Isaiah jumps up. Here am I. Send me. And Peter jumps up. And the words in Luke 5 remind me of India. They leave everything And they follow Jesus. Now notice it. This is amazing. Included in the everything is not just their family, not just their house, their comfort, right? They leave the fish they just caught. Think about that. God does a miracle in your life and gives you $10,000. He gives you $10,000. What's your first thought? See, their thought is to leave everything and follow Jesus. That's what they did. When you see the revelation of God... You see yourself again. Then you see Jesus lift you up. Things like fish don't matter anymore. And that's our attitude. That's my encouragement to you. And that's what I saw so well in India. It it just cuts through all our stuff. You know, it's just so beautiful to see these people who leave everything. And the gospel's growing. These church planters, you know, they go out and, and they just stand on the corner preaching putting bumper stickers on the back of of trucks that don't know they're putting bumper stickers on the back of their truck that says Jesus saves. They're handing out tracts and Bibles. They're talking to whoever they can. They get persecuted. They put be put in jail. The threats against their life and their family ostracized from the Indian culture and and, and the the nation and they're, they're outcasts, but they're doing it every day. They're doing it right now in India. They've left everything. What an example for us, isn't it? Leave everything and follow Jesus. What a great reassurance that is. Now, the last thing we're going to mention this morning is the recruitment. Because it's important to see, in my humble estimation, as a minister, experienced, right? I've grown ministries here. I've drawn leaders. I've put them into ministry effectively. Teachers and youth leaders, I've done that. I've advised others how to do it. 
I'm pretty much an expert. And when I read these words, Luke 5, verse 10, and I hear Jesus say immediately, immediately lifts Peter up and says, from now on, you're going to catch men. And I'm like, slow down. There's a training process, Jesus. You don't put a brand new convert into, it's like you, 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 you get down and you pray with someone and they accept Jesus and you stand up and say, welcome to the staff of Christ community. You're going to be over this or that, you know, this, he didn't he jump the gun here a little bit. Well, no, that's not what Jesus is doing here in Luke five. He's not putting Peter in the place of ministry and leaving. He's saying, I'm going to make you from this point on. I'm going to show you what it's like to catch men. So he's not placing him there. In three years, he trains Peter, dies, rises again, and says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Before you go catch men, before you go and make disciples in all the world, Matthew 28, wait for the Holy Spirit. And they do. And then the Holy Spirit comes, Acts 1-8, be my witnesses, go catch men, right? And, And then they go out and they catch men. With the power of the Holy Spirit, the training that Jesus gave them, they have the word of God, the spirit of God, and that's all you need to catch men. And so that's what happens. But it's important to know why Jesus said this at this time. Peter, I, I want you to know, don't be afraid. Your, your guilt is gone. And now, follow me. What that means is character development. Be a better person. Grow in your faith. Learn from the Bible. Pray better. Find community. That's what that means to be a Christian. And what, I'm, what Jesus is saying is what the builder says to you when you ask him to build a house. What do you want to build? The first thing you do before you pay him, before you do anything with the foundation, before you erect walls, and the first thing you do is say, what do you want to build? And you have to draw a picture and do blueprints. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us an absolutely crystal clear image of what our life on earth is supposed to be about catching men everything funnels into that says jesus i'll show you how to do it yourself and that's when peter leaves everything and that's when peter becomes a christian one who follows jesus after one sermon in india i'll close with this illustration i was preaching and i did okay i you know was through translator and i fumbled through my my notes and i i got to the end and I sat down and they were thankful. You know, I could tell that were a couple of nods and a few amens and it was pretty, pretty nice. I, I felt pretty good. But then without a leader, people started standing up and praying out loud. One over there, two over there, five over there, and then everybody was doing it. And it was a little chaotic for me. I didn't know this. Come to find out that's not normal for them either. And they just started praying over each other. And then a, a leader you know, looked around and thought, okay. And he got up and he started praying with them. And now we've got this sort of loud prayer going on. And then he quiets everybody down. He looks over at me sitting down right there on the stage. And he says, will you come pray for us? And that's the first English I had heard. So I'm like, I'm, I'd love to, but I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's happening. And he said, well, let me explain real quickly. And everybody was quiet. And he said, um, I want you to pray for them because uh, you'll notice the 12 people that came up front. And I did. There were 12 that came up to the front. And he says, during your sermon, these 12 heard the call of God on their life to become church planners. Now, I don't know the backstory and all the nitty gritty details of that, but I stepped into something there, didn't I? (laughs) And I'm in awe. Now, did I do that? Of course not. Did Peter draw the fish? Of course not. I'm sitting there on stage saying, This is Luke 5. 
There's no way I knew where those fish were going to be. There's no way I knew that if I dropped my net right here that 12 people would come up and become church planters. Right? There's no way. This is God's glory. And I felt so humble. As I came up, I, I kept saying to myself, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. You all realize that, right? You know. So I mustered up a prayer and I prayed and I went on. And I just keep thinking of that example. And that's my encouragement to you. Find those moments in your life, in your neighborhood, on the sports teams that, you, that you're a part of, that you're coaching even. In, in your schools, where you work. In your families. Our call is to see God's glory, to re-see ourselves, be reassured and lifted up to be and recruited to be a catcher of men. Let's pray. God, you, you have given Peter and the disciples a clear vision of what it means to follow you. And all of our stuff and all of our ministry and all of our wealth needs to go in that direction. As we leave it all behind to follow you, pray that you would use everything here so that we might be able to catch more men and fill up this church with new converts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.